0: Verses 10 through 19, God's word says, On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus said the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, "'If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean?' The priest answered and said, "'It does become unclean.' Then Haggai answered and said, "'So it is with this people, and with this nation before me,' declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare?' When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, with mildew, and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Lord, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by you that things will happen. Lord, we turn to you. Lord, would you use your word to stir us, to motivate us, to help us to see the one who makes us holy. In your sight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In a twist on the Greek story of King Midas, Patrick Caitling wrote a famous children's book entitled The Chocolate Touch. Probably read it if you're older and you're a child. The main character, John Midas, is a self-centered, deceitful, and chocolate loving child. If he has any extra money, he buys chocolate. He sneaks chocolate, and he never shares. Through some fascinating events, John gets a special and delicious chocolate candy that he eats right before falling asleep. But little does he know that this is also a magical chocolate candy. For when he wakes up, everything his lips touch becomes chocolate. Everything. His toothpaste. His breakfast. His baseball mitt. His pencil. Well, He couldn't believe how wonderful this is until he began to get thirsty and went to the water fountain and as soon as it hit his lips, it was chocolate. Then in band class, his trumpet turns to chocolate and bobbing for apples is not only no fun anymore, but it's also disastrous when the chocolate syrup now flies on the birthday girl's dress. The story takes several more fascinating and deadly twists and turns, but I'll let you to read it for yourself. And have the full enjoyment of it. But John's lips, they touched something and it changed the whole thing. He thought this was a blessing, but in reality, it was a curse. In our third message here from Haggai, God is conveying to his people that they have a magic touch. Except the magic is not what they want. Because their impure lives, whatever their impure lives touch, it makes impure Their impurity is contagious and it spreads and ruins everything. And since that's true, how are they going to be blessed? Well, God is going to stir them, and in his stirring, he acts and brings them blessing. If you have a bulletin, you can see the outline for the sermon on there. In verses 10 through 14, on the back, we'll see that impurity spreads and ruins everything. And then in verses 15 through 19, that God's stirring and acting. Brings blessing. Well, verse 10 tells us that this happened on the 24th day of the ninth month. If you remember, Haggai has dated all of his messages. This is the third one. And this date is important because if you look at chapter 1, verse 15, it says on the 24th day, that's the same day, but of the sixth month, they began rebuilding the temple. So it's exactly three months to the day after they started rebuilding the temple. Haggai comes with another message. And next week, it will also be on the same day. But three months have gone by, and they're probably wondering, well, we know we were disciplined for not obeying, but now we are obeying. Where's the blessing? I thought we were going to be blessed. And God answers that question. But before he gets to that in our second point, he reminds them of why they had a problem in the first place. And he does this by having Haggai ask the priest's two hypothetical questions about the law. The questions involve what makes something be ritually holy, pure, or impure. Now, to understand what's going on, we need to actually pause and reflect on the mother of all Bible-reading plan killers, the book of Leviticus. If Exodus has slain its thousands, Leviticus has slain its ten thousands. You know, for many, Leviticus is a lot like vegetables. Vegetables. You know you should eat them, but you wonder why it has to taste so bad. And while Leviticus can be a challenging read, it has important, and I would argue, even encouraging message, is and message for the followers of Christ. The theme from Leviticus that Haggai is drawing from, building on, is the various states of ritual purity. And we don't always grasp this, so I want to pause and reflect on this some. So let's consider these states. What were, they, what were they trying to teach us? And I've been helped here a lot by a man named Dr. J. Sparr. He teaches Old Testament at Covenant Seminary. But when Leviticus talks about ritual purity, we need to understand there is three states, not two. There is three. Purity, impurity, and holiness. Now, the everyday state of most Jewish people would have been Purity. And from this, they could move down to impurity or up to holiness. Now, as I talk about this, you may have noticed that our passage didn't use the words impurity, and purity. They use unclean and clean. Now, I'm choosing to use impure and purity on purpose because when we hear unclean and clean, we think of hygiene, making sure your hands are washed. And that's not the point. So I'm purposefully using the terms impure and pure. Well, Again, they were everyday pure, but certain activities, certain surroundings, certain bodily issues could move someone down from the state of purity down to impurity. Now, it's important to realize these are ritual states and not moral states. For example, being near a dead person, as we'll see, would make someone ritually impure. But that's not immoral, because it would have been a moral thing to go to your parents' funeral or the funeral of a deceased loved one. That's not a moral issue, it's a ritual issue issue so you could go down from purity to impurity but you could also go up from purity to holiness and in the state of holiness you could perform certain functions in the temple thus the everyday israelite would have probably gone from purity to impurity they would move in there and the everyday priests would be moving from purity to holiness back and forth now this may all seem rather odd and bizarre but it's not too different from a state in our life Consider the state of singleness or marriage. To go from singleness to marriage, what do you need to do? Well, you need to go through certain rituals and rites, and then you can pass from one to the other. To go from the states of moral purity to holiness, you go through certain rites and rituals. And like married or single, there's no moralness to it. You're not more moral if you're single. You're not more moral if you're married. It's just a state, and that state affects what you can do. When you're married, you have freedoms that you don't have when you're single. When you're single, you have some freedoms you don't have when you're married. These are just different states that affect their lives, but are not saying something necessarily good about them. But, God did give them for a purpose. And I want to mention two, and then we'll see how that ties back into Haggai. First, God gave them these states, because He wanted them to daily recognize their need for internal moral holiness. You know, daily, as they went through their life, if you've read through Leviticus, all these lists of things, daily as they went through, they had to constantly be thinking, is this going to make me impure or not? And as they daily went through these external factors, it was to drive them to think internally. And we know that because consider one of these, circumcision. They were to circumcise their males, but it tells them ultimately that they were to circumcise their hearts. The external action was driving them to realize They needed to be internally made pure. The external rules were guides. They were pointers to the deeper internal change that must occur. Thus, as we said, the ritual states were not moral, but they pointed to the moral change that did need to occur. Well, second, this was needed and done because they served a holy God. These states were constant reminders that they couldn't just approach God in any way. To come before God, a Jew must not only be ritually pure, but holy. And to get there, they would have to come through the sacrificial system. With that background in mind, let's reconsider these two hypothetical questions that Haggai asked the priests about the law. The first one is in verse 12, and he's asking where something holy, remember that's the top, if something unholy comes into something that is just common-day pure, Does it make it holy? So in this case, a man has holy meat in his garment, and he touches maybe bread, maybe stew, maybe wine, maybe oil, anything. These would have been common day things that were pure. They went in a state of impurity. Well, does the holiness next to the pure bring the pure up to holiness? No. Holiness is not contagious. Well, the second question asks basically the reverse. Well, let's not start at the top. Let's start at the bottom. Can something impure affect the pure he's asking in this case someone goes and is around a dead body which would make them richly impure if that same person goes to the same list of things bread wine oil stew or anything does it make them impure yes impurity is contagious so holiness is not contagious <coughs> impurity is contagious and Haggai then applies it to their life, verse fourteen. They are impure. This nation, this people. And what does that mean? That means everything they touch is made impure. What is Israel's impurity? We'll look back at chapter one. We saw this a few weeks ago. Chapter one, verse time. Chapter one, verse four says, "Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies." in ruins and the contrast we saw shows the issue the issue was that not that they worked on their houses but they were working on upgrades, decorations refinements of their house while God's house was in ruins the issue that made them impure was they had distorted priorities as Jesus says in Matthew 6 seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you And God will not accept people's leftovers. I'll give you, God, whatever time I have left over. God, I'll give you whatever money I have left over. God demands that he be first. And their misplaced priorities have led them to being impure. Now, this is not just some obscure Old Testament laws for uncleanliness or impurity. For in all of life, we see this. A helpful illustration I heard that I'll share is, Imagine Cinderella. She is given those beautiful long white gloves. Imagine she's riding to the ball and she takes off the glove and she's looking at how beautiful it is and how white it is. And as she's going along, the carriage slams into a pothole. The glove goes flying out of her hands and falls into that muddy, dirty pothole. Does the muddy, dirty pothole become glovey or does the glove? become dirty well we know the answer it's obvious even in everyday life purity is ruined by impurity and not the other way around to give another example does healthiness lead to more healthiness or does sickness lead to more sickness if there's one sick person and you put a thousand vibrantly healthy people around them does the healthy person become healthy does the sick person become healthy no if you put one Sick person, around a thousand people, will some of them become sick? Yes. Due to sin in this world, everything becomes worse. You only need one sick person to spread that illness to others. And God has given these ritual states to show that He cares about all of our life. You know, these ritual states should have driven them and us to realize that God doesn't just want sacrifices at the temple. He wants whole lives that honor Him, love Him, obey Him. You know, If there's one part of our life that is, is impure, it affects, it ruins it all. And though there are some parts of our life that are more distinctly religious, like maybe coming to a worship service, God says that every part of our life should be lived in worship to Him, in response to Him, the way we play, and relate to our brothers and sisters matters to Him. The manner, the content of our speech to others matters to Him. You know, we can't make this sacred and secular distinction as though if we're faithful in our sacred task, if we give money, if we go to church, if we read our Bible, then God cares. God loves us. We're good with Him. We'll know all of life. We can't make this distinction. Even in our secular task, our day in day out, God demands that we honor him. But this sacred secular is the false distinction that the people of Jerusalem are making. They're living lives completely for themselves, but they're, hey, we're still bringing our offerings to the temple or the ruins of a temple. And he's telling them that, look, your impure lives are bringing impure offerings to me. Like them, we need our whole life to be consecrated, set apart distinct unto God. And we sang that beautiful song, take my life and let it be consecrated, set apart, Lord, to thee. And as we sang, we asked God to take our moments. We asked him to take our days, our hands, our feet, our voices, our lips, our silver, our gold, our intellect, our power, our will, our heart, our love, even ourselves. That song was saying, God, take all of us. That's what you demand. And that's what we want to give. We want to give you everything. Are there parts of your life that you want to retain control over? You want to be able to still say, I'm going to do it this way. I know what you say, God, but I want control there. God is good. Any rule He has given you is for your good. Trust Him. Submit to Him. Joyfully consecrate your life to him and this passage is reminding us of the corrupting and destructive nature of sin you know, god doesn't view sin as a minor fault a small exception oh that's a personality quirk god sees sin as a an affront to him and it ruins our relationship with him In Psalm 51, David is confessing his sin. He doesn't just ask for forgiveness of sin, which he does, but he also says, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. He knew he needed complete cleansing, complete washing. And yet this would seem hopeless because if impurity always causes more impurity, well, how were they ever going to become pure? But then we see next in verses 15 through 19 that God's stirring and acting brings blessing. Verse 15, it says, now then consider from this day onward. There's many attitudes, emotions, choices, responses we should have to the living God. But one of them is that we're told here is to consider. Literally, they're to put to their heart what is going on and what it means. This is the Fifth time, or one of five times in the book, they're called to do this. Now, our society, we want to just emote you know, were beaten down with the message, follow your heart. But here, they're called not to follow their heart, but their brain. The Bible tells us we need to stop, contemplate, have silence, have reflection. You know, Christianity is not about being a blind sheep following some, whatever some spiritual leader says think consider bring all the evidence to the table and make an informed choice and we see this throughout scripture in psalm 106 when the author is reflecting on why israel sinned in the wilderness he writes our fathers when they were in egypt they did not consider your wondrous works they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love but rebelled by the sea at the red sea thus the proper way to live is expressed in psalm 107:43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Even the mundane issues of life, God has given us nature to help us. And thus it says in Proverbs 6.6, Go to the antosluggard and consider her ways and be wise. Jesus appeals to the same idea when he's talking to people as they're getting nervous and anxious about are we going to have the necessities of life? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 28, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not? Much more care for you, O you of little faith. Jesus has us consider and reflect on the fact that since God cares for plants, isn't he going to care for those who are made in his image? Isn't he even more going to care for those that he sent his own son to die for? Now here in Haggai, they're to consider their past and their future. He begins by asking how they fared in the past before they laid stone on stone and before they started to rebuild. But God already knows the answer. He's trying to draw out of them the implications of their considerations. You know, asking questions is a good way to get people to think. There was a rabbi who was known for constantly asking his disciples questions. And one of the disciples one day got frustrated and said, Rabbi, why are you always asking questions? And the rabbi thought and he said, why not? Back to the point though. God's questions forced them to remember that they would go to get 20 measures of wheat or whatever, but there would only be 10. They would go to get 50 measures of wine, and there would only be 20. You know, they expected one thing, but they got something much worse. You know, God caused calamities, blight, mildew, hail, it says in verse 17, to diminish their crops and yield but they didn't turn back to him. And he says, not just this, but declares the Lord in verse 17. He's trying to get across. This isn't just Haggai reflecting and going, I think this happened because of God. No, God saying, I sent this discipline upon you. But then in verse 18, God now considers, tells them to consider from this day forward, the future. He says, remember when you laid the foundation of the temple. Now there's a little debate here. Is this, when they laid it 20 years before at Ezra Day, when they reset the altar and relayed the foundation, or is this now, maybe it had fallen apart and they had to relay it again? Well, we don't really know, but either way, the answer to the question he asked is the same. Is there seed in the barn? Now, we have to kind of put themselves in their agricultural calendar. The ninth month for them would have been about December 18th on the 24th day, and At this point in their agricultural calendar, they would have planted seeds for the next year. As well, there has been a pestilence, a drought, hail. So is there any seed in the barn? No. There wasn't that much to begin with, and anything they had, they have out in the fields. They have cast their seeds of faith, and God is going to have to bless them. And then he asked, what about the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive? Have they yielded any harvest? And again, the answer is obviously no. These again were essentials for their life, and yet God is calling them to trust that He will bless them. Because He then says, From this day on, I will bless you. You It may appear right now that serving the Lord is doing no good, and yet God promises to reward those who seek Him. God's promises are true. Think across the pages of Scripture. How many times God promised, and it came true. That it looked impossible, and it happened. God will keep His word. And He's letting Israel know, it will happen. This isn't blind faith. This is faith that is considering God's faithfulness in the past, and how He will continue that in the future. And yet again, this is rather startling. Because this is not the conclusion we would expect. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown. And Jill came humming after. Well, it's not humming. It's tumbling. We know it's obvious what comes next. Come on. Well, impure people, we know what happens next. They get punished. But God says here, he's going to bless them. How is God going to bless impure people? And yet, throughout the Bible, God tells us he desires to bless rather than curse. A similar thing is going on in Isaiah 1. God tells him all the hypocritical worship that he won't accept in Isaiah 1. And then he says in chapter 118 of Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Well, how is red going to become white? How are their sins going to become pure? Second Peter. When people are questioning and they're mocking, God's not going to return? His promise of judgment isn't going to happen? Second Peter three, nine, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I entitled this section... God's stirring and acting brings blessing. Let's remember what motivated them to go back to Jerusalem. Well, we noted in the first sermon in Ezra, God stirred them to go back. What motivated them here when they had been unfaithful for 20 years? God sent a prophet to stir them. God wanted to bless them. So he sent people and he said, if you will just turn from your ways, I will bless you. So, God sent these prophets. God sent that. But God didn't just send prophets. God sent His Son. You know, we can be made pure, not just pure. We can be made holy. We can be blessed even though we're impure because of what Christ came and did. We reflected on this amazing theme a few months ago as we looked through the book of Galatians. Galatians three, ten through 14 it says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Thus, even in the Old Testament, even in Haggai's day, God did not promise them blessing because they were good and they kept the law. They would have had to keep every single part because as we already saw, one impurity ruins the whole thing. If their goal was to Be blessed by their faithfulness? It never would have happened. But Galatians continues, it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified, made right before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come. Why are they now going to be blessed? Because God is looking forward in time and knowing that He's going to put all the curse that they deserve on Jesus. And all the blessing that Jesus deserved, He's going to pour on them. And that's true for us today. In my place condemned He stood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! He took my impurity and He gave me His holiness. And thus God's actions, not theirs, not ours, God's actions bring blessing. But notice, there needs to be a response. And this is where people get a little confused. Because here in Haggai and in other places, it appears that their obedience is what brings the blessing and their disobedience is what's bringing the cursing. Except as it says in 1 John, we love because He first loved us. His action is what leads to blessing, approval, and then we respond, not to earn it, but because we love Him. But in that, as a good father, if we don't respond appropriately, He disciplines us. And that's where this can get confusing, because it seems like this is why God's giving us blessing, but it's no God has blessed us and loved us, and as a good father, the discipline comes when we don't Obey. We see this in the book of Hebrews. It quotes from Proverbs three and it says, "My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives." A loving parent, if they see their child dash towards a busy street. They don't go. They want to play Frogger. Let them have it. Who am I to impose my standards onto them? I need to let them live out their own self-expression. No, a loving parent runs and grabs them and says, do not run to that street. And if the child makes another dash, the parent makes sure the child knows. That is dangerous. That will harm you. So I, because I love you, am not going to let you pursue what will lead to your long-term destruction. And as a loving father, God the Father will not allow His children to continue to dash to what will lead towards long-term destruction. And so when we disobey, He brings punishment, cursing in our life. But then when we repent, we respond, we confess, He says, I will bless you. It's not that we're earning a Father's love, we're responding to the Father's love. And as a loving Father, God had already laid out the rules and consequences. You can read Deuteronomy 28 to 30. It tells Him, if you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I will curse you. God had told them what He wants to do. He told them He loved them. Now they had to respond. And even in the New Testament, Acts three nineteen through 20 we're told, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God is a good Father. He loves us, and so He chastises His people. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you have something bad in your life that you've sinned. But if there is trials, we should ask, Lord, is there something that I need to be made aware of? And there might not be. But we should be open to that, to search ourselves and know ourselves. Well, I entitled this sermon, God's Response to an Impure People. And we see a dual response by God. He judges them as guilty. And He sends curses but also seeks to offer them blessing if they'll turn from their ways. Justice will be done either way, though. Consider your ways. Are you completely pure? If not, then realize that God declares impurity to be lethal, not just unhelpful. It was not a minor issue, but the major issue that you should resolve, that you should take care of in your life, Yet God also makes a way for you to be holy by taking the impurity on Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be a holy and blessed person. On April twentieth, two 2015, a national, maybe international, tragedy occurred. Bluebell shut down production of all products and recalled and condemned 8 million, about to cry, gallons of ice cream products, to the landfill, a national disaster. Why? A tiny, microscopic bacteria, listeria, had been discovered in some of their products. And it led to 10 people being hospitalized, and very, this is sad, 3 people even dying. It would be over 4 months before Bluebell began a 5-phase process of reopening production plants and slowly re-releasing their various products to the market. It would be almost a year before they returned to full production again. People mourned. And then, when it was all over, people sh- wore shirts declaring that they survived, barely, the bluebell famine of 2015. All because of one little bacteria. It ruined everything. Now, it's not just in the Bible, but in aspects of life, we realize that some things are so contagious. They're so deadly that even trace amounts are devastating. The more serious the contagion and its consequences, the graver and more serious the response must be. Well, God says the wages of sin is death. Not just decay, though it does that. Not just disruption, though it does that as well. The wages of sin is death. You know, we need more than being in a state of purity. We need a state of holiness, of perfect righteousness. And that is what Keith read for us. How it was done earlier in Hebrews chapter 10. In it it says, And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time when His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Three quick comments and we'll close. First, it is finished, for He has sat down. Probably many of you have had a long day of work in the yard or on the base. And what do you do when you're all done? You... Psh, you plop on the couch. I'm done. You sit. It's over. Christ has finished the task. He has set down. There's nothing else needed to make us holy. This was second for all time. There's no more moving up and down the ritual system, pure, impure, pure, holy. We are perfected, it said. We're made holy in God's sight due to Christ right now in Christ. If you are in Him by faith, you are perfectly holy. Third, it says at the end of verse 14 that this is for those who are being sanctified. The fruit of God making you holy is that you have a desire to pursue holiness. Without no desire, question whether you have been given that gift. So delight in Him, and in that delight, see the joy of following Him, of consecrating all to Him god delights in blessing those who seek him let's pray lord we are amazed that you would delight to give good things to rebels that you would love people who are impure lord we thank you for your son and how he came in our place how he came and he made us not just pure he made us holy And precious in your sight. Lord we love you. We adore you. We give our lives to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.